Solutions Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Kuttner, and I'm so glad you're here. This podcast will help you find ways to live a more authentic life. Every week, I have guests on the show from yoga teachers to meditation instructors, everyone to help you feel like the best you. I'm so glad you're here, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So today on the podcast, I have two amazing guests. I have Dr. Laura Froyan, and I have the singing parent coach, Ange D'Alessandro. They both work in the area of whole child parenting. So I'm super honored to have them on the podcast and get into this conversation. Hi, Rachel and Ange. Yeah, thanks for having us. This is fun. Yeah, so I am so excited to start talking about this conversation. I have the first question for you guys separately is how you got into this work and why you decided to work in this area. So Laura, if you want to go first, go ahead. Absolutely. I mean, so I've always been interested in parenting and family relationships. And as I was getting my um, PhD, I, I did research on how things like parental depression and marital conflict influence child development. Um, and <clears throat> I graduated and started a job as a professor and I just got so frustrated with how long my research was taking to get into the hands of the parents that needed it most. Yeah. Yeah, And so I quit. (laughs) Um, I also was in a place in my personal life where I just couldn't make it all balance. Um, it was, I was in this really intense research focused job and I'd been in a car accident and I was pregnant and it was, it was just a lot. So, so I quit. I gave myself a lot of grace and compassion, um, opened myself to the winding path that life offered me. And now I get to work um, with parents all over the world, helping them find more balance and self-compassion and authentic connection with the people that really matter to them, which I'm so blessed to be able to do. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. And how about you? What's your story? My background is actually in performing arts and my academic work was in English and writing. So I had always tried to balance being a professional theater artist with being a writer. But as many artists often do, I took so many odd jobs on the side and I was always led to working with children. So I was teaching dance and I was teaching voice to the five and under crew. And then I became certified as a music together teacher, which is basically respectful parent or caregiver child music classes. And I wasn't yet a parent myself, but I had brought children that I nannied to the class and it just changed my life immediately. Watching the process of modeling for children without expressly teaching them anything. And I knew I needed to teach those classes myself. So I got certified back in 2011 and started teaching and then became a parent and was trying to, as Laura said, find the balance between doing it all and having it all and, you know, keeping a sense of self. And I went through a lot of uh, postpartum depression and anxiety with both of my children. And I was trying to really maintain the sense of fun and joy that I felt that I was able to bring to working with children when I wasn't a parent myself when life wasn't getting me down, when I wasn't handling all of the day-to-day stuff, you know, and the overnight stuff of being a parent. And I thought, you know, where are the other parents like me who are diving into this work that they just weren't really prepared for adequately? The reparenting, the inner child work, you know, the personal growth that's necessary to do all of this work and, you know, stay true to who you are and become arguably even more of yourself during that. So I said, you know, I'm pretty fun. I'm still writing. This is how I communicate with my own kids through rhyming songs and, you know, instructional jingles. And I said, I'm not seeing any of that in the parenting space. What if I can tap into other inner children of other adults and help them learn lessons instead of focusing on the kids themselves? So I'm still pretty new to this, but, you know, I'm trying to have a good time and I'm trying to show people that this work, although very serious, doesn't always have to be taken so seriously and we're it's going okay so far yeah I love that I love um you know finding joy in the journey too I feel like that's such a key piece to like parenting and life in general so I love that you said that 
Um, so I want to start by talking about modeling because I feel like that's so important because, you know, we've had separate discussions about how our kids are just looking and listening all the time. So what do you think are some of the most important things to do for yourself as a parent because you know that your children are watching and listening? Oh boy. Um, I have a quick, I have a quick answer to this one. I think, I think I want to say the first thing that came to my head because I'm sure that Laura and I could probably go on about this forever. Um, I think really respecting yourself. Yeah. I think that would be, you know, caring for yourself. I know we talked a little bit about self-care before we got started, but I think having self-respect and really enjoying who you are sort of is the foundation for so many other elements of of the self and of relationships with others from boundaries and consent to self-care to making mistakes and growth. If you enjoy yourself and you think that you are worth your time and worth your effort and that you bring something to the table and you bring something to relationships, then that, you know, sounds kind I feel like it almost sounds too vague, but I think that it really serves as, as a nice jumping off point for a lot of other things that we value as parents and values that we hope to impart. So I think that just my kids knowing that I like me, like, oh man, I haven't gotten this yet, but I know I'm so resilient and I'm really fun. I love doing this. I love doing that. Like there's nothing wrong with patting yourself in the back once in a while. I think there's nothing wrong with knowing what you're good at and knowing what you're not good at and knowing that, you know, you're going to enjoy yourself being yourself anyway. I feel like that sounds kind of cliche, but it's cliche for a reason. Yeah. And I think that is so perfect. I'm sorry, I jumped in, Rachel, but (laughs) I wanted to share this story. So when my daughter was about 18 months old, my first one, she was getting her diaper changed and um, after a bath and, you know, we were getting dressed after a bath and my, my husband and I were both there and we were, you know, kind of just chatting while she was getting dressed. And she said, I love mommy. I love daddy. I love me. And this like beautiful 18 month old child unencumbered by the world and just so in touch with her inner wisdom like knew that and i just i mean i like what a wise thing that like all adults no matter if you're a parent or not like i think you're so i think you're so right and that that like that's something that we can convey through practice and my five-year-old said something similar to that earlier this week and i was like how did you learn that she said from watching you mommy I mean, yeah, like it's, it's so powerful. They are always watching. Um, I think my answer to that question, Rachel, though, um, in, in addition, obviously to what all the wonderful things and just said, um, is that self-compassion, I think is one of the most important things you can model to your kid. Um, we hear a lot about like grit and resilience and, um, growth mindset, but really I think that the research that is being done right now and that is emerging, um, I think that self-compassion is going to emerge as one of the most powerful skills a person can have one of the most powerful mindset things that um, leads to more resilience. So, I mean, and that's from if you're coloring next to your kids and you make a mistake saying, oh, I made a mistake and oh, that doesn't feel very good, but I'm going to be kind to myself or a dinner table conversation. So usually when my kids are going to school, we come home and, you know, have dinner together. We go around the table and say like, so what's one thing that you were happy with yourself about today? What's one mistake you made? And what's one way you were kind to yourself today? We go, you know, everybody says those things. And I, so I, self-compassion is something that we actively model in our home. And I, I think is hard to do. Oftentimes parents, especially moms, think they're incredibly undeserving of self-compassion. You know, we screw up, we mess up, we're humans. I mean, I, I like, I, I think it's, it's hard, but important. And it's a skill. It's a practice that you have to do kind of over and over and over again to retrain the brain to have a compassionate lens for yourself. But I I love that you guys said that. I also, you know, think about self-care and I think about all the burnt out moms that are trying to do so much and they put themselves last. But I think, you know, teaching our kids like self-care is important too. I love that idea of teaching kids like we have to take care of ourselves and modeling that behavior too. So um, what do you guys think about moms and, and self-care and, and trying to, you know, take the best care of ourselves? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think that one of the best forms of self-care you can possibly have is (laughs) self-compassion, but I also think boundaries are critically important to self-care. So if you, I'm, I'm running this play challenge in my community right now, but, um, if you're not up for playing with your kids, or you're tired, or you're overwhelmed, or you really need to get the dishes done so you can really feel like you can be present, like it's okay to hold that boundary and to say, I really want to play with you. But right now, I have to get this done so that I can, you know, or right now I need to just sit on the couch for a few minutes and rest. And it's okay to hold those boundaries for ourselves to prioritize our, our need for for our basic needs to be met, you know, our rest, our spirituality, our fulfillment, our happiness, our joy, those things are all incredibly important. And it's okay to hold those boundaries so that they can be met. I also think that many, um, you know, I, and myself included, many parents, when they become parents, they lose themselves a little bit and it's major identity shift, right? So we're in the process of like releasing an old identity and embracing a new one. And we forget to bring the parts of ourselves that led to joy, that led to fulfillment with us sometimes. And so many of the moms that I work with don't even know what they like. They don't even know, like if they were going to have time to do a hobby, they wouldn't even know what they would do because they've forgotten what they enjoy. And so I think that that's a critical piece, like taking time to reflect on like, what lights me up? What do I need more of in my life? What can, and how can I build that into the day-to-day rhythm of my life with kids so that I don't get burnt out? So I don't feel like I need to run away to feel okay, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I definitely agree that like, you can't serve from an empty cup and like your children want all of you too. Like they want to see you, they want to have you. And so it's like, if you're burned out, you have nothing left to give, then how can you really be like the best parent you can be if you're just coming from an empty place? And it's good modeling for them too. You know, like it's modeling, prioritizing your own needs. I mean, that gives them permission when they become parents, if they choose to, to do the same. I want to talk about how like the whole child perspective means like seeing your kids as they are, hearing them, listening to them, and not necessarily like telling them that they have to be a certain way. So how do you facilitate children that feel seen and feel heard? Like what are some of the best practices for that? Well, I think, I think one gift of this pandemic is that we are spending more time with our kids um, and we are getting to see kind of all of them and how important all of them is. You know, normally if we are outsourcing parts of their development, like going to school, we're not seeing, like we don't see it all and we're seeing a lot more of it, which is beautiful and wonderful. Um, My favorite analogy um, uh, that helps parents understand this is the idea of being a carpenter versus being a gardener of your kids. Um, so many um, traditional or mainstream forms of parenting um, and often the way we were parented, um, we came out um, and our parents attempted to shape us into the hu- the adults that they wanted us to be. That, um, that was their definition of successful, of good, um, of productive, of contributing members of the society, you know, all of those things, all of those goals that parents have for kids. And essentially, they were carpenters shaping us, encouraging us to prune away the parts of us that didn't work, the rough edges, smoothing us out into the shape that they wanted us to be. And I think most of us can look back on that and know that it probably wasn't malicious or malintended on the parents' part, on our parents' part, but it also maybe wasn't the best for us, that there are parts of us that we hide away, that masks that we wear, parts of us that were, you know, where we got the idea that our rough edges weren't okay, that we they made us unworthy or maybe made us unlovable. Um, and so the flip side of this is then seeing our role as parents as being more of a gardener, where we are providing an environment where the plant itself can flourish with no like attachment to if it, you know, if it grows a funky way or <laughs> any idea, you know, that we've done something wrong, um, no judgment on ourselves. Like if, for example, if we have a house plant that's all of a sudden has like little gnats on it or has like a weird 
leaf. We don't spend time beating ourselves up for it. We're like, ooh, do we need to move it closer to the window? Did I overwater it? We look at ourselves, we look at our behaviors and how we're impacting the plant that's growing without self-judgment, without self-blame, without beating ourselves up. And we just make shifts and changes to see if we can help it to flourish the way that it's meant to grow. And then there's also a certain aspect of like marveling at how they grow. Like this, we had a pot in our, um, in our window over the summer and somehow a sunflower seed got planted in there. And we don't really know how, but a sunflower grew in this pot. Um, but it was a tiny little pot. And so and this like massive sunflower was growing and it was like wobbly and wavy. It's It was really a very strange looking sunflower. It probably would have done better in a big, you know, nice open area where it could have deeper roots. But that's not the environment it had available to it. And it was incredibly resilient. And so my girls got to watch and wonder and look at it with awe of how like resilient it was, how cool it was, how unique it was. Yeah, I don't, I mean, so I, I love that analogy of being gardeners of our kids, seeing what they need, really seeing them clearly without self-judgment, without judging them and making adjustments for who they are and their individual needs. And each kid is different. Each family is different. Each gardener is different. Yeah. I, I really like that. And what do you think about, you know, seeing your kids as they are and, and hearing them? And I also have a question on discipline for you guys, because I feel like that's a hot topic in parenting. I feel like a lot of people struggle with that. I am loving the uh, gardener analogy. And especially when you were talking, Laura, I was thinking, you also don't think there's something wrong with the seed. You trust that the seed is supposed to grow the way that the seed is meant to grow. You don't think you've got a defective packet or whatever. You, you know, you look at your impact and you don't blame yourself or the thing. And so I think it's a really nice mutual understanding that outside forces are influencing it and not, you know, the growth factors, the grower or the growee, as it were, themselves. Um, I, too, come armed with an analogy. Uh, I recently posted about this and I talk about this a lot and I, I laugh every time because I'm terrified of the ocean. But I have this analogy about being a lighthouse and your kid is a ship. And it's just funny because. You know, I, I basically avoid shifts at all costs, but I love the analogy that parents, if they view themselves as more of a lighthouse than being on a ship with your kid, you know, we're going to anthropomorphize lighthouses and ships <laughs> here for a minute. But, you know, a lighthouse's role is to guide, it's to serve as a port, you know, it's to serve as just a way for a ship to understand its place in the world and know from whence it came or where it's going and all of those things. You know, a lighthouse doesn't get into the water with a ship and steer it. It can't move things out of the way. It can't control the weather. It has one purpose and one purpose only. And I think that the way that we see our children for who they are, or at least begin the process of acceptance, because you really have to be primed to do the understanding before you can cope with whatever it is that you see, you have to sort of do a little bit of pre-work, you know, before you accept your kid for who they are and what they bring to the table, you have to know how to do that and, and also what to do about it. And, you know, it's a really multifaceted kind of process. But if you don't know what your role is, then you don't know how to filter what you get from them. And so I think that the way to see our kids for who they are and to accept them is to know that our role is not to change, to fix, to undo, to pave the way. You know, it's to model behavior. It's to serve as a safe place for them to land. It is not to be a microcosm of the real world. It's not to be their boss. It's not to be their future romantic partner. It's not to be their best friend, their peer. You know, the lighthouse is the lighthouse. And I think one of the best ways to give our children space to be who they are is for us to see and understand and accept who we are not to them because then that gives them the space to exercise their humanity in everything that it is without us thinking we have to sort of do something about that and it's hard you know we as humans we are doers we want to be fixers that's how we perceive our value in the ways that we affect others. And 
we don't have enough time to go into all the ways that those things can play out and all the places from which that stems those needs. But they're, they are not necessary to exist in a successful parent-child dyad. And I think by untangling all of those different elements, you can start to just feel a lot more free. And it's a little scary at first when you're not just jumping to do things. And I think this is such a great lead into the discipline question. But, you know, be, be the lighthouse. You are there for them. It's not always going to be smooth sailing, <laughs> to use another water analogy. But, um, you know, I, I still have to remind myself of that all the time, you know, that I have to remember what I'm not so that I can leave space for what is. I love that. And I'm, I'm thinking too, like from what you were saying that if we're going to be fully aware of who our kids are, I feel like we have to also be fully aware of who we are and the lens through which we're viewing them. Um, I feel like I'm the only person in the world who's seen the movie National Treasure with Nicolas Cage. Um, but in the, there's a scene where he has these glasses that are kind of like 3D lenses where the, there's a bunch of different colored lenses that he can flip up and down. Um, and I think that this is something that parents have to learn to do is become aware that they are wearing these glasses with different colored lenses in them and that they have the power to lift them up so that they can see their kids clearly. Then you need to be aware of the lens through which you're viewing your child, through which you view yourself, the, um, you know, the uh, preconceived notions you have about childhood, um, how kind of your own stuff can get in the way of seeing your kid clearly. Like all of those things are so, so important. Um, you know, like I have one kid who is almost, when I look at her, I see myself and it is really hard to see her clearly because the mirror that she reflects back to me gets in the way. It's almost blinding, you know? And then I project all my crap onto her, you know? And I, so it, it's consciously parenting her is so much more difficult than consciously parenting my five-year-old. Because when my five-year-old resists or is defiant and I need to do some guidance or some discipline, like there's nothing in the way. It's just her and me. But when it's my older one and I need to get in there and do the guidance, do the discipline, it's like my entire family, my entire childhood is all like, we're right there all together, you know? And it's harder. It's harder to discipline her. It's harder to guide her because it's so the relationship is so much more complicated because of my stuff and that's not her fault. And so it's my job to do the heavy lifting there and get it out of the way. I mean, it's tough. It's, it's something that, what if I wasn't aware of this stuff? What if I didn't have my toolbox in place? You know, I, I'm overloaded knowing what I know and being able to, to reach out and get the things that I need and use a lens of child development and reparenting and all that stuff. And even so, you still, it's like, just, it's heavy. And it's, I mean, it's beautiful and it's amazing. And there's always that part of me that is in awe of it. But like, whew, you know, like right? sometimes I just need some Netflix and a nap, you know, and a hug <laughs> from my husband because it's, it's hard. It's hard work to do, but you know, it's worth it. I mean, it's worth every, every ounce of discomfort and there is plenty. Yeah. I think the development of your children will be like worth all of this hard, deep, heavy work because um, I, I do think when children are able to thrive and when you see like how all the work you're doing is really affecting them in the most positive, beautiful way, I think that's the gold in, you know, putting in all this work because it, it is hard to like constantly be aware and realize your lenses that you're viewing situations from that in itself is bold. I don't think a lot of people are so conscious of how they're raising their kids. That's why this conversation is so meaningful. I, I do want to go into discipline because I feel like it's a hard conversation. I think sometimes um, I see parents who kind of take their own anxiety and then they become super strict with their kids. Because there's so much in life that's so uncontrollable, especially your children. You know, there's this idea that we need to create structure to create healthy children too. Like they have to know like structure to develop in a healthy way. So where do you guys stand with the conversation on discipline and raising your kids? I think, um, you know, 
boundaries and limits for kids are like the safety rails on a suspension bridge. Like we're so grateful that they're there. Like the only reason we're going to go out on that bridge is because they're there. And when firm, loving, compassionate boundaries are in place, kids relax into their developmental tasks. They need firm boundaries and limits that are compassionately delivered and held. Um, but they also need to test them. Just like when you go and get into a roller coaster and, you know, the bar comes down on your lap or on your shoulders, like you pull up against that, against it, don't you? Like you automatically do. Or like even like you're walking down a hallway and there's a sign that says wet paint. Like, am I the only one who's like, I'm going to touch it. Is it really wet? I'm going to touch it. Like, I can't be the only one. Like this is natural human nature to test and push. And all of that makes us feel safe, right? Like the, you know, testing the, bar on a roller coaster that's like, oh, good, it's locked. I'm safe, right? I can relax and enjoy the ride. This is what kids are doing when they're testing. And so we just have to be really mindful and intentional in what our limits and boundaries are. So the three areas of limits and boundaries that I focus on with my family and with the people that I work with are uh, the three S's, um, stage, so developmentally appropriate ones um, that are respecting the stage of development your child is in, safety, of course. So most of my limits are around safety and sanity, as in my sanity. Because when I, if there's something that's going on that is crossing my boundaries, making it hard for me to be the balanced mom um, that might build uh, resentment within me, then I, I limit those things. And as an example, and you know this, my daughters are pretty much always dragons. Like the, that's what they play. They're dragons all the time. They ro- like, I don't know if you know this about dragons, but they roar a lot and very loudly. And um, my girls are very good dragons. And so dragons at our house, either they roar outside or they roar in the basement. They do not roar in the kitchen or the living room or right next to me or behind me sneaking up. Like that is a boundary that we are very firm on. Um, Because when I get scared by a roaring dragon, like my like primal brain doesn't know that that's not an actual tiger or something (laughs) behind me. It's very scary. It's bad for my nervous system. It makes me feel like my nerves are shot. And so I limit it, you know? So those are the, I mean, those are the three S's. And then, the, I mean, the process for that is if it's imminent and safety related, you intervene and prevent. And if it's um, something that you can be proactive about, you have conversations and you work collaboratively with your kids to figure out, okay, how can we have this limit if they're old enough to be able to have those conversations? So like the dragon one, when they were younger, it was just a hard outside in the basement. As they get older, we continue to have negotiations around where roaring is allowed, what level of roaring is allowed, what other dragon noises, because they purr kind of like cats too. I, You guys, I could t- do a whole segment on just how dragons <laughs> <laughs> operate. Go ahead. Sorry. I love that. Um, I... I, we haven't gotten to a dragon phase, but you know, we've been heavy in the dinosaur mm-hmm. phase. So there's a lot, there's a lot of dinosaurs, which, you know, I think, I think they're pretty similar to, uh, to dragons in most ways, especially the decibel level. Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, that, that definitely is just something kids really exercise so much power in that way, how they step into being someone else, you know, who wants to sort of play around with that aggressiveness without it being them, quote unquote. Oh, it's such um, a safe way to be aggressive and powerful. Like, it's so good for them to yeah. be powerful and aggressive in that way, you know? Yeah. Um, so for discipline, you know, I always like to add the disclaimer for anyone listening, you know, discipline really means to teach. So I am filming an IGTV later today. I asked my community, you know, what would you like to know about living in a house with two kids, ages three and five, that don't use punishment, don't use rewards, don't bribe, you know, none of that. Do you want to know logistically? So I got a whole bunch of questions. Well, what do you do in this scenario if you're not punishing? What do you do in this scenario if you're not punishing? And it's funny because, you know, the video could be a half hour long where I go through each scenario, or it could be 90 seconds where I say, well, the answer to all of these questions is kind of the same. And of course, it plays off of so much of what Laura said, where I'm setting us up for success and I'm instituting boundaries and limits. And that's going to look the same no matter, I mean, not the same in practice. I'm not going to say the same words every time, but those practices are held up 
no matter what the circumstance is that we're in, no matter what's coming at me. And it's staying regulated enough that we uphold these things, you know, no matter what else is going on. And I think, again, we bring so much back to the self. But I, I have communicated with a lot of people where I have realized the more I get into this work that I have to say to them or that, you know, it's, it's something that they are hoping to hear. Like, hey, your child does not need full run of the house at all times. Mm. Hey, you know. Your kids do not need to be together to, to cultivate a close relationship all the time. And you kind of have to, to guide people to say, you need to set the environment up for success. You're not doing a disservice to your kid if, if they're not feeling free. That's your lens that oh, I'm depriving them of something. You know, if you can look at boundaries and limits as giving them something instead of taking something away, then you can start to look at it from more of, you know, a collaborative lens. And so discipline in my house means that I do a lot of legwork ahead of time to make sure that wherever my kids are generally, and obviously this isn't a hundred percent all the time at any given time is safe for them so that I don't have to communicate verbal, um, you know, commands or verbal feedback so much. The environment is doing the work for me. So it's safe. So I make sure the environment is safe, that they can feel really free to do and be whatever they want in that space, that I am present with them, especially with two kids. Separate yes spaces are crucial so that if they're together, I'm with them. I just answered a question from someone the other day. They said, well, you know, my child's not playing unsupervised without me. And I said, do you mean unsupervised or independently? Because if your child is in a yes space, is in a space that's safe for them, but you leave the room, they may feel unsure and now be unable to play versus if you're with them, even if you're not interacting with them. You know, there's that element of comfort that a child derives from our presence at a certain age, especially different developmental stages, that just lets them relax into the work of being a child. So it's striking that balance between giving them the space that they need, but letting them know they have the support. Sometimes the support is with my presence. Sometimes the support is with the environment. Sometimes it's both. And so discipline is so much about, it's less about what you say and more about the space that you create so that kids know what's expected of them and they know what's safe for them. And they're not in a space that's unsure going, well, is this for me? Is that for me? You know, and there's not that fighting of impulse control because when you're fighting impulse control or giving into it, now you have less bandwidth for anything else, for understanding, for regulation, even for play. You know, if, if you're trying to play and there's like a, I don't know, something really exciting in the corner of the room, even as an adult, you're not going to want to focus on what you're doing, you know? And if you're told not to touch it, that's even worse. So let's, you know, really look at at how we set up our homes and how we set up our spaces, especially now that we're in them all the time. And so discipline is, you know, it's mostly prevention, partly blocking, and then it's just compassion. It's when things do get out of hand and they're going to, it's owning my piece in it. Hey, I shouldn't have left that out for you. Hey, I don't like the way that I reacted there, whatever the case is. And I think that a lot of times families wait too long to intervene and that's when they're coming from the reactive place and that's how discipline ends up getting a bad rap. I think so too, Ange, and I think that they, I think parents wait way too long. Like, you know, they they ask a kid to do something or to not do something one, two, three, four, five times and by the fifth time the parent is yelling, frustrated, overwhelmed, feels disrespected, you know. And then they're yelling and then that's when the kid stops. And because we're training our kids that this is, we only mean business once we're yelling, right? This, so this teaches kids what to expect from us. They're always learning what to expect from us. So if we say like, oh, buddy, I can't let you, you know, draw, use markers on the floor, 
Like we're right there. The second we say it, we're preventing the next time they go to it. Hey, I got, I got, I can't sit here making lunch and I can't sit here and make sure that you're not going to draw on the floor. I'm going to put the markers up and then we'll get out a big piece of paper later. Um, and you can do as much drawing as you need to while you're laying on your tummy. I know that that probably feels really good, you know, but I can't watch you right now. So I'm going to go make lunch. We'll put the markers up here and then they don't have to like it too. This is the other thing. Like, Angie, I don't know about you, but my kids don't always like my limits and my boundaries. Sometimes they have really big feelings about them. And that's okay too. That like, that's all part of the accepting and the allowing. Like, yeah, I, I hear you. You're mad. You were using that. It was so much fun. And I put it away and it's hard. It's hard to wait until I'm available to help you with it. <sighs> yeah. And I think, I think that one of the reasons that parents give their kids so many chances is, you know, Number one, sometimes they're uncomfortable with upset that might result in making a change. But number two, they think, oh, I, I know my kids can do this. Like, it's not always coming from that, quote, you know, malicious place. It's not always about that power struggle. It's not, well, my kids should listen to me. It's, oh, I want to give them the chance to do yeah. it. I want the change to come from them. And that's great in theory. But, and I know that Laura would probably co-sign this, if they could do it, they would have just done it. You know, kids do what they can and what they're able. So if my kid's not stopping drawing on the floor, for instance, that's just too exciting for them. That's too whatever. You know, if they could have stopped when I asked, they would have stopped when I asked. It's not, you know, we start to build this narrative around defiance or respect. And that's when things get heated. Because you're sort of trying to justify why a behavior hasn't stopped. And sometimes it's just like, this is cool. And they couldn't resist. And none of that really matters. So it, it is about stepping in and being able to say, no, I can't let you do that. You can feel bummed about it. But instead of putting the weight more and more on the child to make the change, it's kind of like you think like stacking bricks. Like every time you ask, it's actually making it more difficult because your kid is getting weighed down by the asking. And it's, you know, less likely to happen until you explode. And so if you can hold that boundary faster, it keeps the whole environment and the connection lighter, even if they're upset. It still didn't get to that place of contention. So you have to think like, it doesn't mean you snapped it away or whatever, but you know, the less weight that's on top of it, the easier it is for everybody to sort of move on from that and to repair and to recover for your child, even if they're upset, you know, but if, if there's just more, you know, more, about you asking and then getting upset and then them feeling badly. Now, like you've just like plopped all these feelings on top of each other and it's, it no longer just feels about no markers on the floor. So I think it's about giving parents the confidence to just hold the boundary and, and be cool about it. And I always say, if I can shrug about a boundary, then I know it's worth holding. Like, of course I can't let you draw with Sharpie on the floor. Of course I can't let you start the gas burners. Because, you know, you figured out how to open the child safety locks. We got different ones uh, on the stove. You know, like, I mean, I, like, of course, you know, for me, shrugging is like, this is common sense. If, if a boundary seems so common sense to me, like, of course, I can't let you scream in my ear until it rings for an hour. Like, those are things that I can hold with nonchalance. Yeah. And I, I think, too, like, I, I love what you're saying, Ange, like, doesn't, it doesn't have the, these moments of, of kind of conflict with our kids, of limit setting with our kids. They don't have to be challenging to our relationships with them. If we're doing it early on, we're close, we're connecting before we do it. Hey, I see you're having a lot of fun or, Hey, I love you. I want to keep you safe. I can't let you play with the stove, whatever it is. Or, you know, like we're setting them up for success. Like if we're going for a walk with our three-year-old, we know three-year-olds bolt. Like we know that like when we're going to cross the street, we're going to hold a three-year-old's hand, you know? And so we're getting up closer to the, you know, to the corner and we know our kids have been struggling with wanting to hold, not want to hold our hand while we cross the street, then we get down low. Hey, 
Remember, we're about to cross the street. I can see the corner coming up. We're going to hold hands while we go across. Are you ready? Do you want to hold this hand or do you want to hold this hand? Um, should we hold, you hold my finger or should I hold your finger? Should we lock pinkies? What do you want to, how do you want to do this? Um, would you like to put your hand in my pocket and I'll hold it while we go? Like giving them good options and choices, but preparing them for it. And, and all of that, like that's limit setting, but it doesn't have to be hard on the relationship. It can actually be a beautiful opportunity for connection. Conflicts can always be an opportunity for deeper understanding and more authentic connections with our kids. And I, I think there's something else too, the answer that you kind of touched on. We do get these narratives going, <laughs> these thoughts flying through our heads. They need to know this isn't okay. They need to listen to me. They need to respect me. If I if I can't get them to listen to me right now about drawing on the floor, they're going to be like graffiti artists when they are, you know, in <laughs> in college. You know, I'm going to, you know, if they, you know, I, I can't keep them out of the cabinet, you know, sneaking goldfish, they're going to be sneaking alcohol when they're 15. You know, like we're like, we are like, we go so far down the path and we have to really rein ourselves in. None of this is an emergency. They have scads of time to learn these things. They have very little impulse control. We've got this. And and like, we can loan them regulation. That's what blocking is, right? So, you know, these little kids who have very little self-control, very little impulse control, very little self-regulation, we, they're still other regulated. So when kids are, babies are born other regulated and move in the, you know, the first five years to being closer to being self-regulated, but they still have to borrow regulation from us over time. And that means blocking them from hitting their sisters. That means, you know, peeling their hands out of our hair, saying that hurts. I can't let you pull my hair. You know, all of that is offering co-regulation, right? That, like that's what co-regulation is. And I mean, ultimately that's what limit setting is. Too. And to bring just really fast, to bring the neuroscience into it, the more that you repeat a behavior, the more the neural pathways are formed. So the sooner that you stop that behavior from happening over and over again, if ostensibly you're asking four or five times, the fewer opportunities those pathways, you know, have to be formed. So I don't want my kid to draw, 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 or bite, 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 bite. And I mean, those things are going to happen. No one's saying, okay, there's a deep groove in your gray matter if your kid does it once. But the sooner that you get in there for that prevention, the sooner that the brain is going to be wired to go somewhere else. And it's not going to be as deep a connection as if it's happening over and over again in each instance. It's not the instances themselves so much as how many repetitions are you going to have for that behavior, you know? And so the neurology supports a faster boundary set, a faster limit set so that, you know, that's not as much, there's, the brain's not building so much to continue to do that thing to get whatever it is that they may have been getting out of it. Yeah. And in the process, you're hard, hardwiring impulse control, right? So in preventing and blocking, the child's brain is getting the message. Like I get the impulse to hit and I don't, I get the impulse to hit and I don't whenever we prevent it, like you're hardwiring impulse control through co-regulation through, through that preventing of it. Um, oh, but there's lots of fun ways to teach that too. I like Simon says, and red light, green light, like there's lots of fun ways to hardwire impulse control into the brain. <laughs> Some of the things that came up for me while you guys were talking was just having kind and effective communication. I, I love the way that you said some of the things in the examples with your kids. And I think that would be a great tip just uh, for people to leave with too, is like communicating in a kind and effective way. I feel like when adults get to the point where they're yelling, that's scary, right? Like the kids are like, oh, <laughs> like, you know, they're probably not even going to listen as effectively if, you know, you're yelling something at them. So what are some great ways just to have like kind and effective communication with your kids? Well, I think saying less, if I could, you know, and for a person as loquacious as myself, it's just kind of ironic, but if I could put say less in like every parent's home, um, I would, you know, cross stitch it on a pillow. I think sometimes when we are uncomfortable setting limits, especially in the beginning, and I know that again, this is something that takes practice. I still have to work at it. We really front load with words because we want our kids to buy in to whatever it is we're saying. We want to convince them. And setting a boundary, especially when they're younger and it's not so collaborative, is not about convincing them. It's just about preventing. 
So the less you can say, I feel like the kinder it is because you're not, it's not just a torrent of words with someone. So I think sometimes the kindness is just like doing it quickly, keeping the language simple and making sure that you, you take that moment to let them know that they have your full attention. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I so agree. And I, I think like the leading with compassion and empathy, I think is where respectful and conscious communication starts. I mean, well, really conscious communication starts in your own self, like getting clear on what I'm about to communicate. So like that pause is essential. I'm checking in with yourself with curiosity and self-compassion. Like what's going on for me right now? Why do I feel so reactive? For the most part, none of what our kids are doing are such big emergencies that we don't have a little bit of time to just check in with ourselves and think like, okay, what am I going to say here? How can I be kind here? What would love say in this situation? Like most of the time there is like time for that. I mean, your three-year-old is running towards the road and there's a car coming. Like, no, you scoop that kid up and you say, oh, I've got you. You're safe. Wow. And then you can pause, you know, of course, like when an imminent safety thing is happening, there's not always time for that. Um, but even like with markers on the floor, you can come in and say, whoa, 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 whoa. <sighs> okay. There's marker on the floor. Saying what you see is also like a really great way to like, just give yourself a moment too. So oftentimes I start by just staying at like a non-judgmental observation, like, whoa, there's socks on the floor. Like, oh, I'm in the mudroom and the gear is everywhere. Or the snow has like, is in piles all over the floor. Hmm. Okay. What are we going to do about that? And I just sit, sit there for just a minute, you know, and then I can formulate a little bit better. And that, like saying out loud what you see gives you a little bit of time to think and be a little bit more conscious. But yeah, the, the empathy and compassion is so key. <laughs> Love this, you guys. There was so much wisdom here. I could probably ask you questions for days. I have a lot more. You guys are also such a great like team. I feel like you complimented each other so well. So I really appreciate you both coming on and sharing your time and wisdom with me. So what do you guys have going on? Um, what's coming up for you in your communities? Um, I'd love to hear about that. Um, yeah, you got to talk about the place balance. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know when this will come out, but right now I'm running a 30 days of play uh, challenge in my community where we are spending, we're almost done with our first 10 days, which we've spent just like really carefully and non-judgmentally observing our kids play. Um, we're moving into the reflection phase now where we are going to be reflecting on kind of what we learned about our kids, what we learned about ourselves. And then in the last 10 days, we're going to be taking conscious and intentional action action. Um, and the whole goal for it is to enjoy our kids play more, um, but also to build more independent play skills so that we can get the elusive time for that self-care that we talked about at the beginning of this episode. That's something that like independent play is the only way that I achieve balance in my motherhood is because my kids play on their own beautifully um, and by design on purpose. It's something that I've cultivated in them since they were young babies. Um, so I'd love everybody to come and join the play challenge. Even if you're, um, even if you miss out on, on it, like when and it's already over, you can still go back in my Instagram feed and see all the prompts and stuff. It's lots of fun. Um, I took a pretty big holiday hiatus on songwriting. My goal is to get out one parenting song or jingle a week. And I was achieving that for a while. And then I took a break for the holidays with both my kids' December birthdays and the holidays. Uh, but I'm actually working on launching my website, which should come out really soon this month. Um, and then just uh, doing some guest writing, you know, to really amp up the writing portion since the songs have to be so fast. So I can't always get all the content that I want so to really sort of add a little bit better of a balance, more of the academic arm of the work that I'm doing. You know, I'm still pretty new in launching my community and finding out what they need. So we're kind of trying to, to meet those balances of getting to know each other a little bit better. But really right now, I'm just working on Angelisandro.com will be out soon. It will have a lot of writing up there that is 
a lot deeper than what my Instagram and my songs are able to go into. Um, and then just a lot more songwriting. I have a long list of collaborations with other professionals in the space who have asked to write songs with me uh, to support their work. So there should be some really nice perspectives. You know, I don't want to work in a vacuum. And I'm really excited to bring in people who have other experiences and want to add a little bit of musical voice to, to their style. Oh my gosh, Ange, if I could buy an album that was kid-friendly songs that kids are like, oh yeah, this is a fun song. I like singing this and also taught me how to be a more conscious and respectful parent at the same time. Like, I feel like that would be the best thing in the world. <laughs> well, I I have an album of 29 uh, instructional kid songs written. That's actually, oh. I wrote it back in 2013. And if you go on YouTube and you look up Ange Sings Potty Party, you'll find my <laughs> like 50 stock hop, uh, I, I was still dyeing my hair. I hadn't gone totally gray yet. Um, but I did re- I did film the music video and release one song. I have a couple other things on there as Ange sings. But it was really one of my best friends who said to me, you know, if you're starting Instagram and I had gotten hired by TikTok to do this program with them, she said, instead of starting out as a kid musician, why don't you sing to the parents? Mm, you know, I love so it. My, my parenting songs, it's not that they're not uh, kid-friendly, but a lot of them coming down the pike are just sort of heavier adult themes, you know? So my kids actually know, they go, can I listen to this one? You know, and they know it's, it's not the language so much as just thematically. Um, but I'm trying to build this community so that I can do, I'm sitting on, you know, almost three dozen child versions of these songs about all of this work really, but, but the kid version. So it's coming. Yeah. One thing at a time. Some, some days I'm like, oh gosh, how am I ever going to get it done? But it's going to happen. Awesome. Yes, I love it. Kids love to sing. They really do. My nephew is obsessed with Coco Melon. I don't know if you guys, you guys probably know about Coco Melon. Um, and he's always like singing things that he learns in school. Song is so powerful. So that's so awesome. I have one kid who sings her play. Mm-hmm. So when she's playing, like, the in like uh, as she's narrating her play she sings it instead of saying it you know like wow. it's so fun to listen to I love that. <laughs> yeah. yeah after my own heart i know right oh thank you so much rachel for having us this was such a fun conversation oh my gosh i appreciate you guys so much this was so meaningful and i'm so grateful that you took the time so thanks Thanks for checking out this episode of the Solutions Podcast. For more episodes just like this, be sure to subscribe. And if you want to follow us on Instagram, we're at Solutions Pod. Thanks again for listening and be sure to check out our next episode.